For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, find out how some local library employees formed the Kindred Team to invite the public to join them in reading one book a month that can reveal and explore Black culture. Preview a celebration of classical music, both old and new, as presented by the True Concord Voices and Orchestra later this month. And understanding the FBI way, from the firsthand perspective that former FBI Special Agent Frank Fagluzzi shares in his new book. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. Are people reading more during the pandemic? During 2020, the Pima County Public Library's digital download system recorded a record-breaking one million checkouts. That information came courtesy of one of my next guests, Jessica Pride, the online services librarian for the Pima County Public Library. In 2017, Pride's friend and colleague Tanisha Phillips at the Mesa Public Library became a founding member of the Kindred Team, an association of library employees of color who want to share the best and boldest examples of black written literature with everyone. I wanted to speak to them about the hashtag Read Black initiative. Tanisha Phillips begins. Our mission is to reach, support, and celebrate the black community in Pima County. That's inside libraries and outside libraries. And so we do that in a variety of ways, which include our collection, uh, our programming, supporting other community organizations, being visible in library spaces. And so we are very proud of that work. And as a science fiction fan myself, I find it very encouraging that you chose a work of science fiction to name your team after from the great Octavia Butler. And it's interesting that folks connect our name to Octavia's work. It also has uh, to do with the definition of kindred, which we, when coming up with a name, were very intentional about there's power in a name, there's power in words, and we wanted our name to be powerful. Multiple reasons for it. Jessica, I'd like you to share with us the origins of hashtag Read Black and what the goal of this project is. As Tanisha mentioned, one of our primary focuses is to not just um, provide collections, but programming that not only reach Black members of our community, but reveal the Black community to the rest of the Pima County area. We had a bunch of meetings and some people asked us if we were thinking about doing a book club. It was right before the pandemic that we decided we were going to do that. And the first one we had was going to be March 2020. And we were going to talk about (laughs) books by and about Black women. And that didn't happen, but we finally were able to get it set up virtually via Zoom, and we have actually never had a read black conversation in person, like face-to-face. We've had people join from Washington and Detroit, people who either have a connection to here or were moving here and wanted to check it out, people who've moved here since the pandemic started and really wanted some community It's not huge because really book clubs should not be huge, (laughs) but the people who've come have been really involved in it, and it's been great to see. 
Well, let me ask you both this. Um, one thing that might come to people's mind is online communities often have difficulty maintaining decorum and mm -hmm. making sure that everyone shares the floor. How would you say that the online meetings have fared in that direction in terms of having productive and inclusive conversation? I think Jessica is a fantastic facilitator. She has facilitated a significant number of our Read Black conversations. I have learned from watching her and how she creates a, a safe and respectful and brave space and making sure that one person doesn't overpower the conversation and so that folks can feel like they can jump in. And so we've worked really hard at that, asking questions and also recognizing that not everyone wants to talk. They may yeah. want to put their, their comments in the chat. So we use the chat as well. Also recognizing that everyone wants to have their camera on. So we work really hard at creating a space where folks feel comfortable and can jump in. Well, I think it's important because coming up next on February 26th, there'll be a hashtag Read Black Conversation that will cover the 1619 Project. Tell me why you chose this work and what people who think that it's a monolithic study that might be too big to absorb, say, in the month of February, what advice do you have to give them about how best to interact with the 1619 Project? Um, Nicole Hannah-Jones, who created this project first with the New York Times and then as a book, calls it a new origin story. No history is a monolith, right? The way that I've been approaching it is because it's really difficult to read all at once is reading one section at a time and sort of really embracing what each of the authors has to say. And the people writing are journalists, they're historians, they're sociologists, they're interspersed segments that are poetry and prosaic loveliness and just sort of approaching it with an open mind as to what information they've upturned that we haven't really learned before. I think that what we're discovering is that there are more than one perspective to, to what has taken place historically. The 1619 project examines the foundation on which this country has been built. And so I think that has caused some conversation and some discussion. It's an opportunity to hear different perspectives on how the U.S. started, uh, and we are really excited about that. I have a list here in front of me that was supplied by the library of the books that are coming up each month through December of this year. I'd like for each of you to take a, a title and share it with us and tell us why you think it deserved a place on this list and what excites you as a reader about it. I would say that I'm most excited about Seven Days in June by Tia Williams which we're reading in March. It is a contemporary novel about two people who were torn apart and come back together. They're both authors. So the literary landscape of the novel itself is just super compelling. And the, the writing, the people, the character development, it all builds into something really great. Tanisha? If I were going to choose one uh, that we have chosen for the year, it would be Blackout, which is a collection of, of stories uh, by a variety of authors, including Nick Stone, Angie Thomas. I, you can't see me, but I'm like doing a bow. What would you say is a thread or a theme that carries through the stories in Blackout? The lights go out in New York City. And so it's stories around that theme. Each author has, has written a short story using that as their basis. 
yeah, I'm intrigued to see what folks think about the different stories and the different um, ways each author has used that to create. My guests were Tanisha Phillips, the branch coordinator of the Red Mountain Library in Mesa, and Jessica Pride, online services librarian for the Pima County Public Library. They represented the Kindred team. You can find the hashtag ReadBlackBookList for 2022 and find out how to register for the monthly online discussions on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. To paraphrase a line of dialogue found in Hamlet, William Shakespeare suggests that the purpose of art is to hold a mirror up to nature. To do so honestly today would summon the reflection of a planet in peril. Earth Symphony, a new composition making its world premiere on February 25th, provides a depiction of one possible way our current environmental crisis could play out. Composer Jake Runestead and lyricist Todd Boss were commissioned to create Earth Symphony by the Tucson-based musical ensemble True Concord Voices and Orchestra. I spoke to Runestad and True Concord's managing director, Wells Kaufman, about the origin and scope of this production. Wells Kaufman begins by providing us with a mission statement. True Concord was established to present a great chamber vocal ensemble with musicians, instrumentalists, uh, in Tucson just about 20 years ago by Eric Holton, our founding artistic director, with the mission to enrich the Tucson music scene uh, with a type of ensemble that hadn't yet existed of professional singers who are brought into Tucson from all over the country to perform a wide variety of music, including the classics like the Mozart Requiem and the Bach B Minor Mass and the Messiah and holiday concerts, but importantly, to commission and perform brand new work from living composers. And that is exactly why the program coming up at the end of February uh, by True Concord is going to feature the world premiere of Jake and Todd's Earth Symphony. Yeah, it's really, for me, a composer's dream to be able to write for the ensemble of chorus and orchestra. It's one of the largest combination uh, of voices and instruments that you can possibly have on stage. What's especially exciting about that is all of the possible sounds that I can make unifying voices with instruments in many different combinations to achieve uh, certain colors, certain ways of telling stories that are impactful, that are colorful, that are profound, that are playful, that are sweeping. You know, if you think about like a, a painter, I get to play with thousands of colors versus maybe just your basic Crayola set. <laughs> so it's really a, a dream come true for, for being able to write for this extraordinary uh, group. And Wells, what does it amount to on stage? Uh, what can you tell us about the number of musicians and singers that will be involved with Earth Symphony? So the audience will be treated to about 70 musicians on stage, almost equally divided between vocalists and instrumentalists, including um, several very interesting and intriguing uh, instruments that um, Jake has put into the piece. I wouldn't say for sound effects, that sounds sort of demeaning, but uh, perhaps Jake can explain that. So this is a sweeping look at our Earth. I tend to be drawn to aspects of what it means to be a human in the world today. And I look towards what are, what are kind of the most important aspects of that experience. So with a piece of this size, I wanted to address something that's really crucial. And so to me, that's the climate crisis. 
So in working with uh, a dear friend of mine, poet Todd Boss, who uh, eventually was to write the words for the choir to sing, we landed on this concept of using the voice of Mother Earth to tell the story of humanity. And in our story that we've created, humans have become extinct. And so the Earth is recounting what made us special as a species. And of course, this is this is a story. It's not necessarily saying that humans are going to become extinct, but it's allowing us to think about that as a possibility and how does that affect the way that we look at the earth now and the way that we interact and appreciate what we have in this moment. Going back to some of the instrumentation things, there are a lot of your typical orchestral instruments, but I like to use them in creative ways, again, to achieve certain colors. And um, the final movement, which is this recovery movement where Mother Earth, after so much difficulty and destruction, begins to recover uh, from ways that uh, she was harmed. You know, ivy recovering every avenue, seaweed working its way to recover. Um, and so in this final movement, I wanted the sound world to be completely different than everything else. So I actually use pitched wine glasses where, you know, you have a little bit of water in it and you rub your finger around the outside to make it hum. And it brings us into this totally different world that's ethereal, that is maybe what I have in mind is that that pale blue dot image where astronauts from space are looking back on the Earth and and it brings a completely new context to what they see. You know, this this Earth without division of countries or or walls or you can't see war. All you see is this beautiful blue marble. So tell me about the inspiration to pair this new work with a classic that uh, everyone, I believe, is familiar with, even if they don't realize it, uh, Vivaldi's yes, Four exactly. Seasons. <laughs> exactly right. So it's it's probably, boy, uh, Vivaldi is no longer with us, so he won't take offense when I say this, but there's probably no more famous Sunday brunch music than the Vivaldi Four Seasons. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It's used in TV commercials. It's used in TV series. Even if people don't know what it is, they are familiar with it. And of course, 300 years ago, Vivaldi was writing about the environment around us by creating these four virtuosic violin um, concertos uh, of, uh, based on the four seasons. I mean, some of the most beautiful, passionate, slow movements ever written. And they're about three minutes long, I think, of winter in particular, but they're all great. And then the, the virtuosity and what he was able to do and create that, that actually led the way for what a virtuoso violinist does through the centuries is also very important, but also a way to feature four fantastic violinists. So we're actually going to have four different violinists, one each playing each of the seasons. I spoke with True Concord Voices and Orchestra Managing Director Wells Kaufman and visiting composer Jake Brunestead about the world premiere of Earth Symphony. It will be paired with Vivaldi's Four Seasons for performances Friday, February 25th at the Valley Presbyterian Church in Green Valley and Saturday and Sunday, the 26th and the 27th at Catalina Foothills High School. Ticket information and details about True Concord's COVID protocols can be found on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. The vast majority of FBI agents will never become familiar faces. 
But following 25 years of service with the Federal Bureau of Investigation, former Special Agent and Assistant Director of Counterintelligence Frank Fugluzzi did just that. The Tucson resident is now a regular contributor to NBC News and MSNBC. He's often called upon to lend his expertise with threat analysis. Frank Fagluzzi's personal code of conduct will always be guided by the seven C's. That's code, conservancy, clarity, consequences, compassion, credibility, and consistency. He elaborates on these concepts in his new book, The FBI Way, Inside the Bureau's Code of Excellence. Frank Fagluzzi will be giving a live talk on Thursday, March 3rd, sponsored by the Tucson chapter of the Brandeis National Committee. You know, I deliberately chose as the first of the seven C's and the first of those seven chapters, I, I chose the concept of code because I believe that everything else in our value systems and in, in the way you run effective teams, it all flows from your established code of conduct. Where do you get your code from? From your core values, from the exercise of sitting down as a business, a team, an organization, even a family, and saying, what do we stand for? What is it that our mission dictates um, our behavior look like? And what is it we should never do? And it may be a family environment. It may just be sitting the kids down and and partners and saying, we never lie to each other. We're never going to lie to each other. And the FBI both enforces its own code internally and then, of course, famously has to deal with people in society as they enforce laws who have very different codes. And now even as a nation, we really have lost sight of what our code is. And my book came out, and we could never have predicted this, but my book came out in January uh, when, of course, we then had uh, what I call an insurrection at the United States Capitol, an attempt to overturn an election. And as I watched that play out that day, I saw people operating with a different code of conduct. And perhaps it could be said even no code. You point out that the vetting system for, say, a political candidate is a much looser and perhaps even non-existent framework compared to the stringency that the Bureau applies. With what this nation has been through in the last four or five years, it's not surprising that I get stopped sometimes in the supermarket and asked, Frank, how did this person become a senator, a congressperson? How did this person get to the presidency without all of uh, these potential security threats, issues, concerns coming out without the full vetting of allegations of foreign compromise or what have you. And I, I look at them and I go, okay, this is a teachable moment. Because the assumption that many people have that at high levels of government and elected office, that there's some kind of vetting process, some men or women in suits back in D.C. who are saying, yep, they're good for a clearance. Yep, they're good to be a vice president or president. That, that doesn't happen in our society. And I'm not advocating that any bureaucrats tell us who to vote for. But I do think that there's, there should be a wake-up call here, that it's time to more fully vet as a society, and I look particularly to, to media on this, who we're going to vote for for elected office. Because the, the reality is they don't go through any background investigation. The cleaning crew at FBI headquarters in Washington goes through a far more fulsome vetting process in terms of their background, arrest, criminal, foreign um, associations, before they get a clearance to get into FBI headquarters than any elected official. We are a democratic society. We want the people to vote for who they want to vote for. But one of the things I'm a huge advocate for 
for example, is full disclosure of tax returns for, for any candidate for federal office. I think that's a no-brainer. I think foreign business interests for family, immediate family members as well, we need to look at that. How do we get more informed to understand who we're putting in positions of responsibility? Another chapter in your book focuses on the principle of candor. You detail a case where you had to assess a situation with an agent who wasn't telling the truth and um, advise on whatever disciplinary action should follow. In your mind, Frank, does candor get a second chance? I write an entire chapter on consequences, again, with the theme of the seven C's. And then the following chapter right after consequences is a chapter called compassion. But we've got to go back to that first chapter, code. So when you sit down as an organization, team, or family, and you decide what is it we will never do because it is so antithetical to what we stand for, that it would undermine our organization. And in the FBI, that one thing that the FBI said cannot happen because it it destroys who we are is lying under oath. And for that, you get dismissed. The FBI for a living has to be able to make a case in court, has to be able to put agents and personnel on the witness stand and have the jury believe them. So the second that you are engaged in a lack of trustworthiness and candor, um, a decision has to be made about whether you can continue on as an FBI agent. So I did have to make a call, uh, numerous calls during a period of my career. And the one that I was allowed to talk about because it hit the court system um, in the book was one of a young superstar talented agent who just chose to lie about a seemingly insignificant thing. Yeah. Um, and I had to wrestle with that decision. And the decision was to move toward dismissal because um, he had done that one thing that you can't do. So I knew I was going to be interviewing you about speaking at the Brandeis event, and I believe it was about a week ago. I turned on my TV, and there you were. Michael Bloomberg uh, faced a terrible situation where his housekeeper had been kidnapped, and MSNBC contacted you for comment. Now, she was retrieved safely after about 48 hours. Right. This was the housekeeping supervisor. Yeah. Yeah. You made the point, though, that how many of us know how to lower our heart rate to suppress our fight-or-flight instincts in order to make calm and carefully measured decisions if we were in a situation like that? Frank, speak to that. If people find themselves in a suddenly incredibly stressful, dangerous situation, what would be the first thing, if you could be their guardian angel and whisper something in their ear, what is something that you would want to share with a person in that kind of situation? I like this question because uh, I, I tend to be a student of human behavior. And so when I was called upon to comment on television about this kidnapping of a staff member of, uh, at Michael Bloomberg's ranch, and, um, I said, well, we've got a happy ending here. This woman was recovered safely. Bad guy is uh, no longer a threat. Fantastic. What can we take away from this? And, and one of the things that I saw in this woman who was kidnapped, driven across state lines, Colorado to Wyoming, where finally a Cheyenne police SWAT team effected a hostage rescue in a motel room. She had to actually get in bed with him overnight. Um, he had her embraced in his arms all night. I mean, this is an incredibly life or death stressful situation. She survived it. How did she survive it? She talked to him calmly and she didn't panic 
Um, there was a device in the in the car, an iPad that allowed authorities to track location. All of this was just phenomenal. And the last chapter of my book, Mark, is called, and the last of the seven C's is consistency. When you're faced with something you've never faced before, we tend as human beings to jettison all the policies and protocols we have in our team, our organization, our life, the way we conduct ourselves. And we say, there must be some different way to handle this. And, and my message to somebody who's either being held at gunpoint and kidnapped or to an entire nation that's wondering where we go from here under what seems to be an unprecedented level of polarization and stress in our society, a threat to democracy, do we throw everything out and try to find something new, or do we go with our instincts and our protocols that got us here? If you act with consistency under the severe pressure, the kind of pressure the FBI is under every single day, if we stick to the rule of law, the Constitution, three equal branches of government, if we fight for them and stick with them, we will survive this. And I think that's, that's the lesson of the entire book. It's the lesson of a, that woman who was kidnapped and survived as well. Your book begins with a boy who wanted to be an FBI agent. Along the way, you found yourself in so many different situations, we can't even refer to them, including confronting the worst that humanity has to offer. If you right now were to go back and talk to young Frank, what might you say about his career choice to become an FBI agent? I would say this. I... I grew up in a family um, that led me to an early interest in law and enforcing the law because we had a kind of really strong sense of right and wrong. That there were good people in the world and there were bad people in the world. And I, I think I would have said to young, young Frank, you're on the right path. Um, you're you're going to make an impact. You're going you're gonna to do some great things for a, an incredible organization someday. But, Frank, you're also going to learn that the world is not black and white. It's actually very, very gray. And you need to see the good and bad in all people and not categorize um, so simply. And I think that only comes with seasoning and experience <laughs> and age. But I would, have, I would have reminded young Frank, work hard to see the good and bad in everybody because the world's just not that simple. That was former FBI Special Agent and Assistant Director of Counterintelligence Frank Fagluzzi. He'll be appearing live during a luncheon that begins at 9.30 a.m. on Thursday, March 3rd at the Skyline Country Club, along with fellow best-selling authors Alka Joshi, Talia Karner, and Ace Atkins, all guests of the Tucson chapter of the Brandeis National Committee. Proceeds from the event will benefit Sustaining the Mind, a Brandeis National Committee fund supporting a university research program seeking causes of neurodegenerative diseases, including ALS, Alzheimer's, and Parkinson's. You can find information about tickets, streaming options, and the Brandeis Committee's COVID protocols at TucsonBNC.org. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show originates from the AZPM radio studios. AZPM's news director is Christopher Conover. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. I'm producer and host, Mark McLemore.
Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.